of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O Lord. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this passage from your word to us, that you would teach us what is pleasing to you, and that you would show us the grace of Jesus this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you like zombie movies? Maybe like is the wrong word. I didn't really grow up with horror. It's something I started watching more as an adult, which is probably good. Um, uh, it seems like you're supposed to enjoy them for how terrified they make you feel. But anyway, why are zombies such good bad guys? I mean, we could start by saying that it's because they eat people, and that's pretty scary. But you know, dinosaurs also eat people. But I think zombies are even more scary than dinosaurs. And I think it's because they are humans who eat people. There's something just kind of revolting and horrifying about that idea. Well, in our passage today, we are going to see that liars are like zombies. Speaking untruthfully to other people is like eating them. It's a very striking image, um, but as we look at our passage this morning, uh, we're going to look at it in three points. First, God hates the devouring speech of the wicked. Second, the righteous seek refuge in God. And third, Jesus transforms our understanding of what it means to be righteous. So God hates the devouring speech of the wicked, the righteous seek refuge in God, and Jesus transforms our understanding of what it means to be righteous. So, our first point, God hates the devouring speech of the wicked. There are some general references to wickedness and evil in this psalm, but the focus seems to aim specifically at sins of the tongue. 
In verse 6, we hear about those who speak lies. These bloodthirsty and deceitful men. We're probably supposed to put those two adjectives together. Through their deceit, they uh, seek to shed the blood of other people. Verse 9 has the most vivid imagery. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Okay, so for inmost self, let's translate insides instead, you know, this area. Um, the whole sense of this metaphor is, is swallowing and consumption. This follows a wider image in the Old Testament that slandering or deceiving other people is biting or devouring them. I know that might be something we don't really have in our culture as much, but you find it in the Bible a lot. Now let's add that the metaphor for flattering used at the end of the verse is literally to make smooth or slippery. Um, So they make smooth or they make slippery with their tongues. So if we put this all together, when these people open their mouths to speak, their words are like a slippery chute, drawing their victims down into their gaping mouths and down into their insides. And their throats, like a grave, are a one-way passage to death and the underworld. See, I told you, zombies. And what's that thing we say on the playground sometimes? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But this playground proverb is all wrong. Words can be incredibly damaging. And a liar might as well be a zombie devouring their fellow human beings. The psalmist makes it clear that God hates this dishonesty and abhors those who practice it. It separates the wicked from God's presence. God will not dwell with evil. Those who practice it will not stand before him. David even prays for them to be cast out in verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. I wonder if you have a hard time when David starts praying like that, starts praying for his enemy's destruction. After all, didn't didn't Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? What are we supposed to do with this kind of Old Testament passage? Well, let me give you a couple thoughts. Um, I think one of the things that helps me understand this kind of psalm is their justice dimension. David isn't just praying against his personal rivals so that he can get ahead. He's praying against people who mean to inflict violence and oppression on their targets. I think of the fall of men like Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein. Should their fall sadden us? I think in a sense, yes, it's a very Christian thing to do, to pray for the repentance and redemption of people like that. But it's also a good thing when justice is done. It's a good thing when the deceit of predators is brought out into the lights. David wants God to hold these men guilty. These wicked ones have been deceitfully attacking and consuming their innocent neighbors. And the fact that they've remained safe in a cloak of deception is not okay. 
It would be a good, just, and right thing for God to catch them in their own schemes so that their guilt becomes publicly displayed. In fact, it would be the vindication of those that they have attacked. Now, do Jesus' words nuance this attitude? I I think so. I think so. Somehow our love, even for the wicked, has to go together with our concern for justice. And it's also true that we're in a different situation than David. We're not king of Israel, tasked by God with opposing the oppressors. Our battle is not so much with flesh and blood as David's was, so we probably won't pray exactly the same way he will. But I hope we still can pray that God will bring justice. You know, when the oppressed cry out against their oppressors, we shouldn't just say to them, well, you know, we're all sinners, so, you know, maybe you should forgive them instead of calling out for justice. That would be bad theology. Shouldn't we pray that tyrants are brought low, that slanderers are silenced, and that abusers are put to shame? I think we can in the same way we pray for our daily bread. I don't think it's the only thing we should pray for, but it is something we can pray for. And from a New Testament perspective, knowing that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with dark powers, how strongly we should pray against them. Well, anyway, that's my attempt to make sense of these sorts of prayers and psalms. Ask a different pastor, you might get a different issue. It's a genuinely difficult uh, uh, issue. But before we leave this point, I want to also take some time to do a bit of a personal inventory ourselves. You know, we may not have sought to get other people killed with our full speech this week, but when we encounter these descriptions of the wicked, it's important to ask ourselves, where might be the seeds of these same sins in myself? So let me ask you, where have you struggled with honesty this week? Have you been tempted to relate to other people in a way that is less than truthful? You know, often we do this because we want to manipulate people. We're seeking to control their version of reality so we can control them. Rather than seeking their own good, we seek to use them for our purposes. Using, that's what we do with food, isn't it? We crush and cut it with our teeth, and we digest it so we can extract the nutrients. We destroy it so that it can sustain our life and growth. But that's no way to treat other people. What might that have looked like for you this week? Might it have been telling an outright lie to avoid accountability? Spinning a narrative to make yourself look good? Telling a story in a way that makes somebody else look worse? Exaggerating to get attention? Playing with the truth, it might be something that makes us feel powerful like we can shape reality with our words. But we can't spin things to God. He hates lies. And he has a habit of bringing the truth to light, despite our best efforts. So if there's something the Spirit is convicting you of right now, the wise thing to do is to repent and seek to make it right with those you have lied to. Anything else is playing with fire. So that's the first point. God hates the devouring speech of the wicked. Second point, 
The righteous seek refuge in God. The righteous seek refuge in God. There's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked in this psalm, as there so often is, but it might not be the one you expect. True enough, the wicked are cast out of God's presence, while the righteous are able to enter his house. And since the wicked are cast out because of the abundance of their transgressions, we might expect for the righteous to be brought in because of the abundance of their good deeds. That would be symmetrical, wouldn't it? But that's actually not what we find. We do find the same word abundance in verse 7, but it's through the abundance of your steadfast love that David is able to enter the house of God. The basis for David to come into God's presence is not his good works, but the steadfast love, the chesed of God. And this runs through the whole psalm. As David pleads for God to hear him, he doesn't point to his works, but to his relationship of trust in God. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for logical grounding, to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice to you, or I would translate that, I set out my prayer to you. In the morning I set out my prayer to you and watch. David sets out his prayer, and then he waits, expectant for an answer, because he knows who God is, and that's who he's trusting in. And at the end of the psalm, the community of the righteous as a whole is characterized as those who seek refuge in God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Uh, All who take refuge in you. We hear about God spreading his protection over them. He covers the righteous with favors with a shield. What's what's the imagery of God here? Well, he's, he's a fortress, a shelter, a shield surrounding them. You know, really, God himself is the ultimate temple. Uh, The solid walls of the temple or even the overshadowing tent of the tabernacle of David's day, they visually represent the spiritual protection that's found in God alone. I think verse 8 captures, verse 8 captures the whole attitude of this psalm. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, Make your way straight before me. You see, David doesn't just list the faults of the wicked so he can list his righteous traits and look good by comparison. That's not to say it's never appropriate to describe the traits of a righteous person. We've seen that in Psalm 1, and we see that in a lot of other psalms. But the point of this psalm is that the evil acts of the wicked are a direct threat to David. Their bloodthirsty, violent speech is terrifying. And so he turns to God to make his path safe for him. The point isn't, look how righteous I am compared to these wicked people. The point is, protect me from these wicked people. And so the focus here is on a heart attitude of trust in the Lord, which rests on God's faithfulness more than our own. This psalm tells us who God is, a God who hates evil and loves good, and therefore a God who shelters the oppressed from their oppressors. You know, this world can be a scary place. It's full of zombies. P. 
people who seek, really do seek to harm other people and who hide that behind layers of deception. But David tells us that God is a refuge in a dangerous world. He's someone we can fully trust, even when others prove untrustworthy. I suppose you could say that God is a safe place we can hide from the zombies, whose walls cannot be overrun by the undead horde. God's someone you can trust when others hunt and attack you, when they slander you and deceive you. Even if the whole world doesn't believe you, God knows the truth. And when we put our trust in him, he is a refuge against all the lies of the world. And one thing I'll also only mention briefly here because I talked more about it last week, that refuge, the righteous experience, can lead to immense joy. Look at, look at verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Okay, so that's the second point. The righteous seek refuge in God. Third point, Jesus transforms our understanding of what it means to be righteous. You know, Paul does something interesting with this psalm in the book of Romans, which Hannah, Hannah read for us in the New Testament reading earlier. What's the great problem that Paul is wrestling with in Romans? Well, there's this conflict in the church between Gentiles, non-Jewish believers who have put their faith in Jesus, and some Jewish believers who look down on them for not observing all of the rituals in the law of Moses. I think this attitude is sort of sarcastically summed up by Paul in Galatians pretty well. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Hmm, what kind of attitude does that display? So how does Paul address this conflict in Romans? Have you thought the first opening chapters of the book? You know, he starts in a way that his hearers might expect. He goes after the Gentiles. He starts with stereotypically Gentile sins, like idolatry and various kinds of sexual immorality. But then he springs the trap on his Jewish listeners. He turns to his fellow circumcised Jewish believers, and he says, you too are under the wrath of God because of your violation of the law. As he says uh, in our New Testament reading, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. It's not just those Gentile sinners over there. You know, this must have been a shocking thing for those listening to Paul to hear. Why is Paul relativizing the difference between God's people, the Jews, and the surrounding world? How can he say, as he does say, that Jews are no better than Gentiles? So where is Paul going to turn to demonstrate it? Where is he going to go? What's, what, how is he going to prove this to his audience? Well, he goes to the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 14 or 53. He quotes our Psalm, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36. And then he also throws some Isaiah 59 in there as well. And the parts of the Psalms he quotes are all descriptions of the wicked usually contrasting them to the righteous in the same psalm. But what does Paul do with those descriptions of the wicked? 
Well, he takes them and applies them to the whole Jewish people. He observes that the law, that is the Old Testament, is speaking to those under the law, that is the Jewish people. In other words, these verses are not spoken to Gentiles, they're spoken to the Jewish community. And what that means is that the whole world, everybody, is held accountable to God because no human being can be proven righteous through the law. They can only come to know their sin. Okay, so how does this make any sense, what Paul is doing here? You know, someone might object, aren't these words about the wicked, aren't they in here for the bad Israelites, the wicked ones, not the righteous ones who stick to God's covenant? But I do think Paul has a point here. No doubt he'd be relieved to hear that my almost, this almost assistant pastor thinks that he has a point. I mean, let's not forget, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but I think Paul has a point here. Uh, and the point comes from the first psalm that he quotes, Psalm 14, or maybe it's Psalm 53. Actually, this psalm is in the Psalter twice. God put it in there twice just to make sure we wouldn't miss the point. Um, and this psalm, well, you know, it still has the normal contrast. It has the wicked versus the righteous and God delivering the righteous and all of that. But right in the middle, it has these verses insisting that actually all human beings are corrupt and none of them does good. You see, the drama of the righteous versus the wicked, it still plays out in this psalm, which I think is important, but it plays out against the background of the universal sinfulness of all human beings. And for Paul, this background of Psalm 14 and 53 seems to apply to all the descriptions of the wicked in all the psalms. And I don't think that Paul intends us to just cancel out the difference between the righteous community who trust in the Lord and the wicked community who oppress them. I don't think David intends it to cancel it out either. But what I think Paul is saying here is that I can't look at the sin of the wicked and think, you know, that has nothing to do with me. I'm a righteous person because I follow God's law, and they're sinners, and that's all there is to it. No, their sin reveals something about the universal reality of human sin. Their wickedness reveals something about the wickedness in my own heart. So that when the Holy Spirit speaks in these graphic descriptions of sin, in these passages, and then applies them to the heart of those listening, you know, when the law speaks, as Paul says, there's no one, whether you're a covenant insider or a covenant outsider, no one whose sin is not revealed. Nobody who doesn't stand accountable before God's judgment seat. As Paul says, all have, fall, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But as Paul also goes on to say in Romans, God has manifested a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness comes as a gift through the blood of Jesus. I guess you could say that this is Paul's answer to how we come to be the righteous who are described in the Psalms. We don't come to be the righteous by our works. It's not on the basis of being better than other people, as if we could justify ourselves by comparison to those sinners over there. But 
if you have faith in God's righteousness, if you have faith in Jesus' death for you, if you believe that God accepts you in Jesus entirely apart from your works, then you are righteous. God has declared you righteous. I think just to resurrect my zombie metaphor once again, you know there's always that one guy in the zombie film who gets bitten but doesn't tell anybody about it? Paul's saying, don't be that guy. Maybe you're not a zombie yet, but don't ignore the infection in your bloodstream. Come to Jesus for the cure. Well, we could say a lot more about what Paul has to say on, on Romans. I, I won't. That would be another sermon. Um, I've already said a good bit. I have a reason for it. I want you to understand why when I preach the Psalms and we come to a description of the wicked, I'm going to go after your heart. For me, that's a matter of faithfulness to Paul as an apostle of Jesus. That's the way he reads the Psalms. So that's the way I want to read them too. And you know, as surprising as the stuff Paul says may have been to his contemporaries, we haven't actually ended up that far away from our psalm this morning, have we? After all, this is a psalm that describes the righteous first and foremost, not by what they do, but by their trust, their faith in God. Yes, works are important too. Faith in Jesus transforms our lives. We don't live the same way that we did before. But that's not most fundamentally what makes us righteous. It is our faith in God that does that. Faith that acknowledges our sin before God and receives the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. That's where our psalm today ought to lead us if we read it with Paul. First, it shows us our sin. It brings us to stand before the judgment seat of God, a God who does not delight in wickedness, before whom we cannot stand because of the abundance of our transgressions. But it also opens to us a way to dwell with God because of the abundance of His steadfast love. Trusting in Christ's work on our behalf. You see, outside of Christ, God cannot be pleased with us. But in Christ, we are covered by God's favor like a shield, His good pleasure his delight, that same delight that was spoken over the Son when he said, you are my Son in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, that covers us like a shield. May we evermore rejoice and exult and sing praises in the name of Jesus, our refuge and shelter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that when we stand before the light of your truth, there is none of us who has never sinned. There is none of us who can claim in our own merits to stand before you. But there is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who stands always in your presence. Lord, we seek refuge, we seek protection in him under the shadow of his wings. And so we pray that you would apply this word ever more deeply to our hearts, that we would become more and more like him. 
In Jesus' name, amen.